and Livor. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World. I'm delighted to be joined by Don Harpster, Senior Conversation Architect at TalkDesk. Don, how are you doing? Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> this was doing this last time, you know, this was, I was having some really dodgy, uh, dodgy <laughs> situations with this uh, program last time. We had, uh, we had a very similar situation, so hopefully the recording's, the recording's okay. Uh, but you can hear me though, John, can you? I can hear you. Yep. Cool. Perfect. 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 Good. Good. Uh, cool. Well, thank you for joining us. Appreciate uh, appreciate you spending the time in uh, Nebraska. Are you? That is correct. Yes. And thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Nice one. Yeah. Appreciate it. Uh, it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to this because uh, yeah, TalkDesk is a very interesting company. One of those companies that um has been, you know, I suppose you've been TalkDesk has been working on conversational AI for quite a while, right? Well, I've only been with the company since um, January of 2021. Um, yeah, so a little over a year. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't resist when when uh, Ben Rigby interviewed me. I, I was immediately uh, enamored of him and of the company and couldn't wait to jump on board and work for TalkDesk. Nice, nice one, nice one. Uh, cool. Well, we'll get into we'll get into that a bit more. But first, before we do that, I want to give a quick update to the folks tuning in uh, at home or wherever you are. That uh, VUX World will be at Project Voice, not Project Voice, the Voice Summit rather, in uh, October. It's creeping up now. It's in about eight weeks' time. Uh, VUX at Voice Twenty Two, presented by Core AI, and we're going to be covering the end-to-end story of contact center automation. So, if any of you are looking at ways in which you can automate your call center, automate your contact center, automate your customer experience we have got a whole day's worth of content planned we've got a stage to ourselves we've got a room to ourselves going to be 150 professionals and business leaders in that room and learning the tricks of the trade the ins and outs the challenges the insights and everything you need to be able to set up a project launch a conversational AI solution and scale that throughout the enterprise. So I'm hugely looking forward to that. It's the first in-person VOX World event that we've done yet. We did have one planned in 2020, uh, obviously for obvious reasons, that didn't happen. Uh, so so it's happening in October in Arlington um, and it's going to be absolutely immense. So go to www.voicesummit.ai for more information and for ideas and pricing on tickets and things like that. Looking forward to seeing you there. Uh, cool. So yeah, looking forward to that. Um, so back to back to yourself, Don, and TalkDesk. You said you you started TalkDesk in twenty twenty one. Did you say? That's correct. Yes. So what were you doing before TalkDesk? Well, I, I was doing the same thing at another company. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot of experience in in conversation design. I have a lot of experience, and I don't want to do the math. Um, it's been that long. Um, yeah, been around, seen some things, seen some trends come and go. And, and it's interesting when they start repeating <laughs> when those trends come back nice. around again. And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this from last time. Right. Yeah. What trends have you noticed repeating lately? Well, a- actually, the persona trend. OK, right. so persona trend, there was a, there was a time back in, um, you know, when the majority of uh, voice applications were IVR. Uh, and all of a sudden, everybody decided they needed a persona. Um, and and now we're coming back to that, which is interesting to observe from this vantage yeah. point. Interesting. So it's an interesting one, that, isn't it? Because so for those of you that subscribe to the LinkedIn uh, newsletter, Conversational AI and NLP, if you just visit my profile. It's linked there if you don't already. Uh, or the VUX World newsletter, or if you visit the VUX World website frequently, you'll have seen the post that uh, yourself, Dawn, and Ben... Uh, Ben McCulloch on our team uh, put together, which was really interesting and refreshing because one of the things that me and Ben were talking about during the process of of putting together the article was how it's become almost like a default in the conversation design community that mm-hmm. the very first thing that you should do when you're designing a conversation is to create a personality or a persona mm-hmm. and it's almost like it's a, it's a given that that's what you do every training course that i've done over the years it's in there the training actually that i've given to others it's been a part of it um and so it's almost this like default behavior that no one's really challenging or questioning um and so it was really interesting to hear a bit more about your approach on that mm-hmm. uh, because there's a lot of stuff, I think, that goes into these personas that can be a little bit like fluff, a bit unnecessary. Right. And so a lot of the stuff that you were saying was really resonating with me. So I'm wondering whether you can share, for those that haven't read the piece, a little bit about your philosophy on persona or personality design. Sure. Um, and, and my philosophy is pretty, it's pretty simple here. Um, you know, the user is the most important. 
Um, the user is the most important actor in a VA that you're producing, um, not the persona. And, and I feel like, you know, there a lot more emphasis is put on a persona than on the user to the detriment of the VA and to the detriment of the user. Um, you know, you don't really need to have a persona to have a good VA. Um, you, you need to have good writing to have a VA, in, in my opinion. Good writing, good, good intent training, phrase training, all of that. All of that's part of it, right? Um, but I find that a lot of times way too much focus is put on a persona, um, when in actuality, the user just wants to get some business done. You know, specifically if your VA is something transactional, if your users are coming to you to complete a piece of business, a, a persona might impede that, right? If you're putting too much emphasis on the persona. Um, you know, it's one thing, and I, and I use this example, uh, Surfer Boy Pizza. I don't know if you're a Stranger Things fan, but um, Stranger Things has Surfer Boy Pizza, and there's actually a phone number you can call to get nice. to Surfer Boy Pizza, and it's, it's, it's clever and it's fun, right? And that's definitely a situation where, yes, of course, a, a personality makes sense for that. But there's a lot of applications where a personality isn't necessarily something that makes sense. And the example I use is this. When you go to the bank right, in person to make a transaction, and how many of us still do that, right? Uh, but, but there are times when inevitably you have to go into the bank to complete some business. When you go in there, you get to the teller. Does the teller say, hi, I'm Jill. I'm going to be your teller today, and, and I'm going to help you with this, this, and this. You know, no. You get in there, you tell the teller what you want to do, you conduct your business and leave. You know, do you remember the teller's name? No. Was it really important? Not really. Did you get your business done? That's what's important. Mm, interesting. Mm -hmm. There is there is in instances where it has been a bit of fun, but it, you're right, it does need oh, yeah. to be the right kind of use. I know that Domino's had an Alexa skill a while back, mm -hmm. and um, it, it had, I can't remember the exact, the actual, the actual skill was rubbish, I have to say, because you couldn't make an order. You could only order from what was in your favourites basket, which meant that mm -hmm. you had to go to the website, assemble a favourites bundle, and mm -hmm. then once you had that assembled, you could order it on Alexa. So it was all a bit kind of like, you know, backwards. But anyway, the the personality of the of the assistant there was quite good because it was doing little gags and stuff like that. You know, mm -hmm. if, if it couldn't check you out or whatever, or if it like made an issue or whatever like that, it would say something like, you know, fiery jalapeno, I've made a mistake or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it would, it would be a little bit fun, but that was very much a, a purposeful experiential activity sure. it wasn't necessarily yes you might have been trying to order the pizza but given that you could only order a pizza from your favorites box mm -hmm. not many people could actually order a pizza so mm -hmm. it was more like a gimmicky experience rather than a something that was there to help you get a job done so to speak mm -hmm. um and so i think you're probably right that most of the time there is uh it's more transactional the user wants to get something done and yeah. other fluff might kind of get in the way a little bit but how do you how do you approach sort of dialogue design and I suppose having a consistent language and such if the project requires more than one copywriter or more than one dialogue designer mm -hmm. or maybe there's plans in future to bring somebody else on board like how do you sort of communicate to that person how you should be crafting dialogue for this thing I keep very copious notes. I keep a lot of notes. And first of all, brand guidelines, right? If, if the brand you're working with, if the business you're working with has brand guidelines, then number one, that that's a reference material that is priceless, that is going to help you keep the conversation consistent, right? Any notes I have about, oh, the voice should be, I mean, you know, if it's... <sighs> If it's insurance, if it's banking, if it's something that requires some level of gravitas of, of the VA, then definitely keep notes on, you know, the type of voice they want to use or the voice settings, right? There's, there's, you know, you can set the voice settings so that you have, it's this voice personality, it's this pitch, it's this delivery. Mm -hmm. Um have all that in a, in a shared resource that anyone can access so that when I hand over a project, they have all of that, that legacy material. Um, you know, and, and as a writer, um, you know, not just of VAs, but of stories and other things, um, you know, I don't necessarily keep a full dossier on every character I write for. 
you know, it, it, it's in there. I, I understand their voice. And yeah, passing that along to somebody else is important. Um, and usually when you read some scripting somebody's put out for a VA, you can get a feel pretty quickly. Oh, this is kind of a formal application. They say thank you instead of thanks. They don't use contractions when they speak. You know, if you, if you look at the material that's there, you can usually continue the voice design without a lot of extra stuff thrown in. It's interesting because I remember watching, I remember seeing um, an interview with Ricky Gervais mm-hmm. at one point. And bear with it, bear with this uh, this story. I remember seeing an interview from Ricky Gervais at one point, and he and he was asking, he was answering a question which was almost like a criticism of, you know, every time you're in a film, you play the same kind of character. Why mm-hmm. is that? And he was saying, well that's because that's kind of who I am, you know, just because mm-hmm. the, the mannerisms that I have are kind of similar. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that that's a wrong thing to do. It's just mm-hmm. that that's who I am. And this part that I'm playing is, is that kind of thing. I'm mm-hmm. not going to change everything about myself for the sake of it. It's, it's kind of like, you know, he is a consistent uh, person, I suppose. And that's what you get when you cast him. And so the more I kind of, work on these things especially in certain industries and certain domains i've been using a lot recently i don't know if you've seen the conversations with things book from rebecca evanhoe and diana Deeble. there's a really great bit about personas and personalities in there and it's not about you know she this is jill or that's steve and they're from connecticut and the dad's a doctor and you know they've got a four-year-old dog and a two-year-old son and you know the favorite color is blue it's like it's it's more about what is the goal that the user's trying to achieve yes yes and then what factors are going to constitute success for this goal? Oh, well, it needs to be mm-hmm. quick or it needs to be efficient or it needs to be whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's a few skills that they use, which is like, uh, you know, what does the tone need to be like overexcited and happy or like a bit more down to earth? Is it mm-hmm. warm? Is it c- cool? Like, uh, and things like that, you know. And then like there's a really good bit about working out how should the assistant respond if it's challenged to something? How should mm-hmm. it respond if it's being corrected or how should it correct a person? And so... Right. I mean, it's really good, but what I've noticed in certain domains is that when you do this and you do the personality design with a team of people who are ultimately going to have ownership over this assistant, Mm -hmm. there are very clear patterns that emerge. Nobody wants it to be called Steve or Trudy, but they want it to be humanized a bit. They don't want it to sound too robotic. They want it to still be a bit humanistic. Uh, All the goals are kind of the same. The user just wants to get something done and they want it to be Mm -hmm. quick and speedy and not overzealous or over the top. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't want it to be too cold and standoffish, but they want it to be kind of approachable and warm sounding. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't want to be rude when they correct people. And so there's all of these patterns that emerge that I reckon now, and I'm sure you may feel the same. I'd be interested to get your thoughts. I reckon now that a certain brand could come to me and say, we want to create a persona and I'd be able to just go to that template and do one for them. And that would be the end result that they would do if they did it themselves. So I'm wondering if you can, is is there a place where all of this stuff converges to a place where actually most assistants require a very similar kind of persona if you want to give it that label? Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. I agree with everything you just said, right? Um, You know, like I said, uh, you know, changing the tone based on the business, right? And, And the user needs don't change a lot, right? The user needs, you know, they they might need more guidance in a VA. I mean, depending, and a lot of it depends on the application, right? If I'm writing something, and I think I used this example before, if I'm writing something for, let's say, AARP, the American Association of Retired People, how I write prompts is going to be a little bit different than if I'm writing for a sporting goods company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think more about the users and what they need and, and who that user population is. To me, that is a much more useful metric than any persona that anybody comes up with. To me, it's who are the users? How are they using this? What do they want to do? What, what are their needs? What do they need? And, and how do I give that to them? You know, ultimately voice design, it's, it's writing for the needs of the users and writing for the needs of the machines. And that's where they meet in the middle. Mm, mm, does that answer your question it does yeah definitely definitely Uh, you mentioned a bit a minute ago that you've done you know you do other writing aside from Mm -hmm. you know conversation design and stuff Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. i know that you have uh you know a background in in psychology and stuff Mm -hmm. i'm wondering whether you can shed a bit of light on because what what we're doing when creating digital assistants is you are creating some degree of 
um, what do you want to call it? A character, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. So you, so you, and and that character is having, you know, for some companies, lots and lots and lots of conversations with lots of different people. So there's lots of opportunity for something to either go wrong, or lots of opportunities for, uh, you know, bad ex- negative experiences to occur. Mm-hmm. Yet you can use potentially psychology when you craft prompts and when you create dialogue in order to make that experience a little bit more. I don't want to say human-like. That's probably the wrong way of saying it, but a bit more user-friendly. Yeah, I whether you can, yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder if you can share a little bit on your thoughts of where psychology and conversation design kind of meet. Oh, it, everywhere. I mean, they meet everywhere. You know, even things such as, um, you know, in, in human-to-human conversation, there are a lot of unwritten rules, right? You and I can see each other. I see you nodding your head just now. Right. I see that you're paying attention. You're understanding what I'm saying. Um, you know, when when you just asked me the question, you asked the question, then you paused. I knew it was my turn. OK, those visual cues do not exist in voice design with, um, you know, with a voice assistant or on the phone. Um, so turn taking issues can, can become a problem. You know, knowing when to build in those pauses, how to build in those pauses, how to whether or not you should make a prompt bargeable. Okay, you know, and and if if there's a prompt and and you you are able to say what you want in the middle of it, that means it's bargeable. If it makes you listen to the whole thing, it means it's not bargeable. There are certain prompts that you just shouldn't make bargeable. Um, there are instructions users have to hear. Uh, the rule of primacy and recency in a list, right? If you're giving a listener a list of things um, and it's too long, they're only going to remember the first one and the last one. They're not going to remember the middle ones. That's why you want to keep your lists between three and five. I've seen some schools of thought that say only three. And and I would say that depends on how you're presenting the list, right? Um, turn Oh, cognitive load. That's another one. You know, cognitive load, how many things a person can remember. Again, that goes back to the listing thing. Um, you know, people can only remember a certain amount of things if you overload them with information they're not going to remember what you've told them. They might not remember what they need to say. There's a lot of things that come into play when you're designing conversations that apply to psychology and also how you make users feel. I don't know if you've ever used a voice assistant where, you know, it's made you feel, you know, dumb or a failure because maybe you didn't know what to say because it wasn't giving you clear guidance. You know, users walk away from these things angry who are they going to be mad at? Are they going to be mad at the bot persona or are they going to be mad at the company for creating a bad experience? You know, I go back to the Domino's example that you just gave, right? How, how cool would that have been if besides this wonderful spicy personality that this thing had, if it would have been able to take your order and give you a pizza, how much better that would have, you know, gone Mm. for the company had they been able to design, uh, uh, this application, this skill that would have been able to do more for their users. People would have been raving about it. Um, and and that's that's really the thing, right? There's there's a company locally, it's a national company that, that actually has a voice bot uh, that goes by a name. And the first thing people say to me when they, you know, find out what I do is, oh, have you talked to named bot. It's terrible. You know, at least they, they can, they can use that name to reference how bad this bot is. But I'm, I know that was not the intention of the designers, right? I know that wasn't the intention of the company, but here we are. Mm, Yeah. There's a lot of that. And it's, you know, we had, um, we've been having a lot of conversations lately. I know this is a, this is a famous line from, well, famous in my head anyway, how famous it is to everyone, I don't know. But David Law, uh, ex-BBC, ex-Skyscanner, he always says that uh, you build your first bot twice. Because the first time you build it, you would because you're learning, you've never done it before, you make so many mistakes that you end up building it again. Um, and, And obviously, as you've just said, it's it's the old kind of like agile and lean principles, yeah. isn't it? Which is that nobody, everybody did the best they can at the time with the knowledge and resources that they had available to them. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody launches a chatbot or a virtual assistant or a voice assistant or whatever that is lacking in some way, shape or form, it's not that they've done it on purpose, but mm-hmm. there is things that, that either aren't done or done incorrectly that leads to a poor experience. I'm wondering if you can share a bit in your experience, what are some of those fundamentals that people get wrong sometimes that can lead to negative customer experiences, either if it's your first time doing something or, or you know, um, something like that? What are, what are those kind of like the, the core things you've noticed that people get wrong when they when they begin trying to do this? 
The gotchas, right? Mm, the gotchas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the first one is having um, an expectation of what the bot can do that's, that's not realistic. Okay, let's be honest about what bots can do right now in this space, right? And I know this is changing and this is evolving, but typically bots do best with simple repetitive tasks. Okay, um, so starting out with a use case that is trying to get its arms around too many things um, can, can be a pitfall. Right. It can be a huge pitfall. Mm. Um, also, you know, one of the things how I, here's how I can spot an amateur. OK, how they're asking questions, how they're asking user questions, how they're phrasing them, um, because why I've made all those mistakes. OK, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've made all those mistakes. And for example, one of them was uh, a company that you can wire money globally. And I was doing a redesign for them. And I, the question I asked, are you calling to send or receive money? And the answer users were saying, I was expecting send or receive. They were mm. saying yes. Didn't occur to me. Whereas if I rephrase it, which are you calling to do? Send money or pick up money, right? Mm. It's the same question, right? It's just phrased in such a way that the user knows that the response is going to be either send or pick up money. Um, that's one. Um, the, the, gosh, there's so many, uh, you know, menus that are structured, menus that are front-loaded. I don't know if you know what front-loading is, but, you know, for, for billing, balance, or uh, to make a deposit, say, deposit, right? Right now, the cognitive load on that, that's four things. Mm. You think it's only one because they say deposit or whatever, right? But you've just packed four things on there. So now they have to try and, oh, I, I have to say this for this thing. And that's just the first option. <laughs> Even if they have three options and they have three things, that's nine. That's nine things. It's already past the five point, right? Um, you know, so how menus are structured, um, you know, uh, and then, you know, things like to speak to an agent, say agent, you know, or, or, or you know, there was one I, I encountered the other day where the phrasing was like, well, why don't you just say speak to an agent? Why, why, why is it if it's this or this, say agent, mm. you know? Teach, I, teaching people how to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and that's the thing. It's, and that's another thing. And I, I use this comparison quite frequently when I'm talking to people who are, who are learning the art is that, you know, you have to teach these bots to talk. You have to teach the bots to speak much like you teach a baby to speak, right? You have to train AI, human in the loop AI, right? You have to train it to speak. And when you're, when you're presenting a bot to users, they have to know what to say, right? Hmm. You have to be very clear with what they can say if, you know, if it's structured in, uh, you know, a, a very linear way. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. A lot of people who are beginning with either no formal training or experience will make a lot of their mistakes, hmm. you know, really without thinking about it and without knowing mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. um but then as you get a bit more experienced like for example you you've been doing this for quite a while mm -hmm. you you're experienced you, you know offhand these principles that's mm -hmm. how embedded they are in your kind of like psyche and experience what are some of the challenges that somebody in your shoes an experienced conversation designer would face today um, as far, well, I, you know, everybody thinks this job is really easy until they have to do it, right? It's just words on paper. It's, it's just getting people to do this, but we, you don't realize that human behavior, you can have the best designed VA on the planet and people are always going to do things that you don't expect. Users are always going to do things that you don't expect. I, I think there's a perception and I've encountered this a lot where, well, you know, people who are designing stuff for IVRs, they don't know anything about modern voice design. Well, hey, look, a lot of the same rules apply here. You know, a lot of the same rules apply. A lot of the examples I just gave you, how you ask a question, it's still important. It's still relevant and it still impa impacts your bot's performance. Mm. Mm, interesting. What, what are some of the, you mentioned there when, you know, if you mentioned to somebody that you design experiences like that named bot for that, I think it was a financial services company you mentioned. Um, what are some of the 
misconceptions that people have about about that role or maybe 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 let's put it as you're talking to a either a potential client or a new client and you're having some kind of like kickoff engagement or whatever what are some of the misconceptions that people bring into those conversations either about conversation design or about conversational ai generally well i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm going to go with your first question. So usually when I meet somebody, they ask me what I do. I just say I'm in software design. (laughs) I don't want to tell them what I do because inevitably it's like, oh yeah, you know, those voice bots where you call the bank and, uh, you know, yeah, I design those. Oh, I hate those. Those are terrible, (laughs) you know? And, and the, the challenge I feel is that there are so many bad ones out there that people seem to think that the only experience they're going to get is a bad one. You know, Mm. uh, power users, they're going to press zero. They're going to say operator. They're going to scream a swear word or whatever they do to get out of it. Right. You know, and when I meet with a new client, I I try, I listen as much as I can. I do research before I even meet them to kind of get an idea of what the business is about, what their potential pain points might be. I'll go read Yelp reviews. Mm. of the business, because that gives me some insight into maybe some customer pain points that we can talk about and address. And, um, and I think it goes back to what I said earlier about having setting realistic expectations for what your VA can do. Mm. Right. Um, I'm working with a company right now that's a car parts company and they're very risk averse. I mean, I'm familiar with them because when I was married to a stock car driver, we'd get their catalogs this thick at the house, right? And and so I knew who they were and they're very risk averse. They've done business the same way for the last 50 years. And they wanted to kind of dip their toe into the pool of VA. And so we talked, we came up with a use case, um, we presented this use case. We got it up and running. They're already, they're seeing the value, which is fabulous. I mean, to me, half the challenge of working with clients is getting those clients who are naturally curious, who are on board with recommendations and who are willing to take those recommendations and then, you know, step out of their comfort zone a little more, try new things. And um, that's the challenge. The challenge is getting them to, A, listen to recommendations, mm. B, roll it out, look at the data, and, and, and be agile. Like you said, make changes as we see them come along, because inevitably, users are going to do things we don't expect. Mm. You mentioned there that people typically say, when you say, if you, if you were to tell someone that you designed those voice experiences for call centers, that they will say, oh, they're a lot of rubbish. And I've had them conversate. I, I even, you know, a few years ago when the predominant thing we were doing was designing Alexa skills mm-hmm. and you'd say, oh, um, you know, we designed uh, things for Alexa and Google Assistant and stuff. And it was like, oh, Alexa never understands what I say, you know, it's a lot of rubbish. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's this, for some people, there's this kind of like, I, I would say misconception of the capabilities of the mm-hmm. these voice assistants because if it's designed well and it's built mm-hmm. well then it should do the job it's supposed to do it's not going to do everything so maybe mm-hmm. i think i think that these assistants even siri and stuff when they were first released were really over promising mm-hmm. what it what the what the theory is um but you know most of them that are designed well can work well but there is still a big historic footprint of really poor experiences those yeah. ones you were alluding to earlier for for checking say checking for for credit cards say credit yeah. cards you know one yeah. you're teaching people how to speak two you're giving people huge amounts of information which they mm-hmm. can't kind of comprehend at any one time mm-hmm. and it, but and i know we've kind of spoke about like gotchas and stuff like that but it's still maybe it's in the ivr space there is historic legacy stuff there mm-hmm. that isn't a great experience. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the ingredients that lead or led to those experiences being particularly poor? And is there anything in that that we can learn for creating ones today using better technology, presumably? Well, uh, you know, when I started doing this, um, you know, there weren't a lot of companies even producing IVRs. Right. And I worked for the bit, one of the larger companies. And when I started working there, I was just sort of turned loose with minimal training. Mm. Right. So what's going to happen? I'm, I'm going to design crap. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) in spite of my best efforts without structure and training, I'm going to design crap. Um, and so, yeah, that's how it started. That's how they started with, with getting a bad reputation. Um, but you know, 
now we have these wonderful back-end speech recognition systems that are a lot better at recognizing. They're a lot more flexible. They don't require the same amount of um, hand-holding. You know, you don't necessarily need a speech scientist now because you have these pre-built speech engines that, that don't require that. But, you know, back when we had to tune those things, it was expensive, right? Um, it took a lot of time because the utterances had to be tagged, categorized, classified, and then these reports. I mean, it, it would take six months, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas now with the tools I have, I can go in and I can see what's being misrecognized, right? Or maybe there's a pronunciation that a user is using that's not common. And I can go in and I can create custom vocabularies. I can, I can create new intents with utterances in real time, which wasn't possible before. So, you know, the, the VAs we're producing now, there's so much more, there, there's so many different tools behind the hood that you can get your hands dirty. And that can also be a double-edged sword, right? If you don't know what you're doing, you can really mess things up. But, you know, it's it's gotten a lot more democratized. It's gotten a lot more, um, you know, data in real time that you can respond to more quickly to make things better. Does that answer mm -hmm. your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So the technology has definitely improved. Mm -hmm. um, without a shadow of a doubt, the technology that's available now, even compared to five years ago, is, is oh, yeah. incredible. Um, I wonder whether, obviously... Some people have been, as, as you have, and I remember we've spoken to, you know, like Jonathan Bloom, ex-Nuance, now currently at Google, and Daniel Padgett of the same kind of like uh, crop of folks that were like early Nuance kind of like voice mm -hmm. designers and, 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 you know, working on effective things, you know, in the 90s and stuff like that. So the technology was obviously limiting, mm -hmm. but crafting it right, designing it right means mm -hmm. that you can create a decent experience. Now mm -hmm. that the technology has gotten a lot better, that obviously enables the things that you've just mentioned there. You can iterate things a lot faster and you mm -hmm. can do things a bit more sophisticated. What has changed in terms of the conversation design practice since that time? Because things, good things were still happening then. Yeah. There was still a lot of the stuff that you'll read in, in the books, Kathy Pearl's book, for example, yeah. a lot of the stuff in that is, is practices and principles that go back, you know, 90s, 80s and, and so on. So it's like mm -hmm. a lot of this, I know it's a new trend now, conversation design, and it's mm -hmm. kind of like becoming a really growing practice and a, an emerging role for a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, and career choice for a lot of people. Um but a lot of the principles were still around a, a while back. So I'm wondering if you can kind of shed a bit of light in your experience of what do you think's kind of changed and developed as far as conversation design processes, practices, you know, tactics, things like that. Well, again, um, the democratization of the tools, right? Before you had to have an IVR developer right now, um, you know, I know TalkDesk has, has their own proprietary design tool. So, you know, and it's codeless, basically. It's drag and drop, which is which is wonderful. But you you get a lot of people who really don't know what they're doing. But um, one of the basic things is scripted out sample calls. I mean, that's that's such an easy one. Write it out. Write out look, the conversation like you think it's going to happen. Test it out with somebody that you know. I always say my mom is my best beta tester, right? Mm -hmm. My mom is, my mom is, how old am I? Uh, my mom's 74. Okay. So, um, you know, if I'm working on anything with her, um, I will, I'll get her on the phone and I'll run it with her because she's, a, she's great because she'll say, I don't understand that. Right. Mm. So, I mean, the basic principles are keep it short and sweet, right? Um, keep your, keep your structure out what you want your users to say in such a way that they understand it, give them some examples, vary up those examples from, you know, an initial to a retry or a repair flow as they're called. Um, you know, there's just basic writing principles that, that don't change. <laughs> mm. Mm. What, what is your kind of process? Do you begin with writing and sample dialogues? Do you do something before that? What comes after that? Like, I wonder if you can share a little bit of light on, you know, what is your process? If, if you were to start from the beginning of a project, what's your kind of role and remit in that project? And what's the, what's the process for you look okay. like? Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, it kind of depends. So sometimes I'm a very visual thinker. So, um, you know, first I'll come up with use cases with the client, definitely talk to the client, get their input. Um, and then, um, 
sketch it out. Uh, you know, I have a dry erase marker on my window. I think my neighbors think I'm insane because I'm always <laughs> jotting boxes and arrows down on my window because it helps me think it out. Like, okay, think about what the flow is. Think about where we've got integrations. Where are we going to get data from? What happens? You know, I, and I do, when I do that initial step, yeah, it's kind of high level, but I also do some detail stuff because I want to know, okay, where might there be a delay, right? Because mm-hmm. we're, we're doing a backend lookup, right? Um, what what are the possible returns? What is it a null? It, you know, is there an error? It, let's say it's the happy path, and we get something, and then I map out the journey that way, just so I can visualize the flow and how all the parts work together. And then I'll go and um, do some samples, right? Script out how I think this might work, um, and then um, depending on you know, where we are in the requirements phase. Sometimes I'm doing this in the requirements phase because the clients are not really sure what they want. So mm-hmm. then I'll go back to them and I'll share the flow with them and their developer team and say, okay, here's what I think is going on. Is this yes? Is this no? And we'll walk through it that way. And then we'll walk through some samples. And if if we get buy-in, then I'll go and do the detailed flow um, and either build it out myself on on the tool or hand it over to one of my team members who then builds it out with the tool. Mm. And then, and then creating test scripts, right? Um, creating test scripts, making sure that, you know, we've, we've accounted for all of the responses um, and testing it out, making sure it works. Mm. What's your thoughts on, on that kind of happy path? So a lot of the methodology and the kind of like, um, I suppose the, the standard process at the moment is to, is to do that kind of happy path first. Mm-hmm. I've always found personally I can't help sometimes get a bit carried away. So at, at one point, you know, when you recognize that a user might say one thing, my brain just goes crazy. It's like, oh, I could say this, they might say that, they might say the other, they might say that. And then what happens if they don't say this and that? So I always end up, for, for whether it's a fault of mine or not, I always end up going a bit deeper than a happy path, mm-hmm. kind of pretty quick because anything can happen at any point more or less i don't know what your thoughts are on do you start with a happy path and then do iterations or do you go pretty deep pretty quick i go pretty deep pretty quick because i you know i i'm i'm a firm believer in that you have to provide your users a way to recover like not everybody is going to go down the happy path things happen dogs bark kids scream I'm distracted by my kid throwing pizza on the wall, so I miss a prompt, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, and, I know and I, I, I'm always, yeah, <laughs> yeah you want, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I'm always, you know, I think we do a disservice if we're only hyper-focused on that happy path because users, mistakes are going to happen and we have to give them the opportunity to be able to recover from that and return to the flow or get them out of the flow if they can't recover. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm like you, I mean, yeah, I kind of designed for the happy path, but like I said, when I'm looking at integrations, when I'm looking at what happens if they don't say this, do we have a counter there? Um, you know, what happens? We have to have a counter. We, how are we going to phrase the reprompt? You know, um, are, are we going to apologize? And that's another, that's a whole show. That's a mm. whole other show, Kane, <laughs> about whether or not you should have your VA apologize. But, you know, um, all of that stuff goes into it. And and I'm with you. I designed, I, I don't just design that. I can't just design the happy path. I'm like you, I can't, you know, I have to design the other parts too, because it, it's, it's holistic. It's a holistic entity, mm. right? You know, you take one piece out, you're going to break it. Um, you know, and that's another thing that drives me bananas is, oh, I just want to change this prompt. Well, what prompt comes before then? I don't know. <laughs> what comes after it? I don't know. Well, we should probably look at that before yeah. we make a decision on this and how we're going to do this because it's, it's, it all fits together. It all works together. Mm, that's one of the values, I think, of having those low-code kind of interfaces because mm-hmm. before, you know, as I said, you know, building Alexa skills and stuff like that without a tool to do it with, it was all code. So it was basically a, a, an intent comes in mm-hmm. and every intent more or less is a completely fresh intent. You need to mm-hmm. build basically a state machine that tries to realize what was the last prompt, mm-hmm. then what was the next one, and it ends mm-hmm. up being a complete web and it's a total mess. Like, mm-hmm. um, But yeah, it's interesting you're saying there about you know going deeper quicker because then those recovery, I can't remember who it was that said this, and that might have been Jonathan Bloom, which is something like conversations are actually made 
in those recovery moments mm-hmm. because anyone can get from beginning to end of a happy path that's not a problem anyone can design right. a happy path really providing the people say what you expect them to say it's all rosy right. but where conversations are actually made you know where the, where the designers i suppose make the money and where the the assistant finds its success for the business is in dealing with the things that are not on the happy path which is most mm-hmm. of the conversation most of the time mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, it, it's funny that auto parts company, they, they were a lot of their uh, their customers will say, do what now? Yeah. Do what now? And they mean repeat. So we've added that yeah. as a repeat recognition. Right. So that we repeat something. Um, but yeah, the, the no conversation um, is perfect. Right. And, and, you know, if I don't understand you, I can say, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Or can you repeat that? Or, you know, just something. But context is another thing that you were just referring to with Alexa skills, you know, the context of the intent, you know, what is it mapping to what was said before? It's, it's vital. Mm. Uh, so, uh, uh, important question then, should your voice assistant or virtual assistant apologize? I think yes. Okay. That's just because I, you know, if I make a mistake, I'm going to say, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, and I don't have a problem with a VA saying, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't get that or or oh, my mistake. Let's try that again. You know, mm. just something to like, oh, yeah. All right. Let's let's try it again. And yeah, I don't have a problem. I, I, I'm i kind of uh, stymied by the thought that it should never apologize because, you know, would you apologize? Yeah, it's it's that's the thing that's made the mistake, isn't it? Necessarily. Yeah. There's yeah. no mistake in conversation, is there? And so if the right. bot doesn't and, understand and, something. Right. And, and you never put the onus, you know, you never put the onus back on the, you know, oh, well, I didn't hear you. You know what I mean? It, it, that gets annoying really fast. Like I said this, why did you not hear me? <laughs> yeah. Um, so in that process, when you're kind of like starting to go from, you know, the, I suppose the conceptual design into more of the sort of like developer development mm-hmm. kind of phase where you're actually putting something together that can be tested, so to speak, mm-hmm. in, in, in the tool. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering whether who you can talk us through kind of like who does what in that phase. Like in your team, do the designers also do things like, you know, NLU training and, and training data and populating those models and stuff like that, testing those models? Or is there a handover to a developer? I'm wondering whether you can kind of talk us through what happens a bit further down the line. No, well, I mean, you know, my team is is pretty much involved from start to finish um, and, and creating intents and training intents um, and um, and testing. Um, you know, my my uh, my husband was a, a tester, and and he said never have developers test your stuff, right? Um, <laughs> you know, or let, never have developers test their own stuff. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I may develop it, I may come up with the test scripts, and then hand it over to the rest of my team, who doesn't, you know, who might not have been involved in the initial go round, right? And hand it to them and have them test because they can't know everything. Right. Mm. You know, they, they, you know, I want them to know what the basic flow is, but I also want them to be able to find, um, find the gotchas because that makes my design bulletproof. The better the testing, the better the design, right? The better the, Mm. the better the testing, the better, uh, the launch, I should say, not the design, um, because they're going to find things. I mean, you know, the intention of a, of a tester is to break it. Mm. So I always tell the team to break it. Yeah. Yeah. And you need a second set of eyes, don't you? You need you need some objectivity and someone who is completely fresh, because second, that, that's third, like a user. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Second, third, fourth pair of eyes. Yeah, the more the merrier, as far as testing is concerned, in my opinion, um, mm. because they're going to find things that you you didn't plan on. They're going to do yeah. things you don't expect, which is what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. And then, you, and then, sorry, go ahead. So, no, no, go on, go on. No, and then after that, we'll hand it over to the user for testing or the, you know, the business for testing for user UAT, user acceptance yeah. testing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was kind of getting at. So, so your, mm-hmm. your testing, is that, um, is it kind of like, there it is, go and play with it? Is it kind of like, here's a scenario that mm-hmm. we've that we need to cater for? So I'll mm-hmm. give you a bit of information. And mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you go about doing the, the testing? Just like you said, with a scenario like, oh, you're calling to check on this benefit, you know, here, mm-hmm. here's your member ID, you know, I'll, any numbers or any, any data that they need to give the system, I'll give it to them um, mm-hmm. so that they can call and, and do this. And, um, you know, and I have them keep very good notes about, well, when we got here, I said this and it failed. 
Mm. You know, so it's it's basically usually like an Excel grid with notes in it that we can go back and pour over and address each thing point by point. Mm-hmm. Nice. And then when you've gone through that that kind of phase and you are getting something into production, obviously the the interesting thing about conversation design, I find, is that you're only ever designing one half of the experience, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean? Because the, the user yeah. is the one who's the other half and you don't reach the users until you do that testing or then until you go live kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so what is is there any things, I mean, there's things that people will measure when they go live with a, a chatbot, but different people want to know different things, don't they? The yeah. business kind of wants to know, how, is this doing it the job it's supposed to be doing? Right. The developers might want to know, is there any issues with our API calls? Is there any bugs happening? You know, some AI kind of optimizers might want to know, is the language model got integrity? But I'm just wondering whether... Is all of this stuff stuff that you want to measure as from the design perspective, or is, is there any things in particular that you're looking for as measures of success from from a designer's point of view? Well, uh, you know, I, I always try when I'm working with a new client to come up with those KPIs, those key performance indicators at the beginning so that we all have, we're all honest, keeps us all honest. All right, mm. what are we doing? What's the goal here? What What's the measure of success? Because I think that's vital, right? You need to know, okay, it's my success metric containment. Is my success mes- metric uh, self-service rates? Is it saving agent time by collecting information in the virtual assistant, right? So mm. um, having those metrics ahead of time will help keep everybody honest and on the same page and and show where the needle needs to move if it's not moving or if it has moving has been moving you know how far has it moved right um i like being involved from beginning to end because on every project kane i learn something new mm. um and and like you said yeah i'm designing for half of the conversation yeah i'm kind of getting into the user headspace and trying to design their bit too but for me the fun really happens is really when the users are using it, right? Not everybody can do, um, you know, usability testing before something goes live, okay? So when we're launching a VA, I'll usually recommend that that the company launch it at like 3%. Let's launch it at 3% of traffic. Let's see what's happening. Let's see what the users are doing. Are we right? Are they doing something we don't expect? If they are doing something we don't expect, we have that opportunity to be agile and adapt and make changes or add training phrases to our intent models Um, Mm. because now we're getting real-world data. And to me, that's where the rubber meets the road. We design in theory. Getting this thing out there in the wild, that is practice. That's where we learn the most. What's your thoughts on uh, training data? So... We've had lots of different conversations about this, and, and we've used different methods ourselves. So one train of thought is that you use customer utterances as they are, and you put that into your model. Mm-hmm. Another train of thought is that you kind of do some massage in to strip away maybe some irrelevant stuff to, so that you focus on what you're left with is the essence of what was said, and you put that into your model. Mm-hmm. Um you can hypothesize as well and just make assumptions and put things in there that you think might be relevant and stuff like that. Like lots of different ways to, to go about that kind of training. How do you approach that once something is live? Are you looking for what's said? And if an intent hasn't been matched, but it should have been, you just take it verbatim and throw it into the, into the model. Uh, do you do any kind of massaging? Like what's your kind of general approach to, to that? Yeah, it, it's the second one where where we're actually looking and, and massage it a little bit, take out the take out the chaff as I call it, right? Mm. Take out the ums and the uhs and and get to the essential nature, distill it down to its essential nature, and use that as a training phrase. Um, you know, ultimately with every project, it would be lovely if the first thing we did was utterance capture, right? Mm. You know, if if we launched something and and we said, hey, how may I help you? And we got all those user utterances and then we took that and we figured out, okay, these are your top intents. Here's what they said to get there. Here's what we'll build around and and use that. But unfortunately that, you know, that's not, that doesn't happen. Mm. Um, But, you know, you, when you're designing a VA, you know, a lot of times you are kind of speculating as to what people will say. And it is always best to use in the wild natural phrases, but sometimes we don't have that option and we, we speculate. And then from that speculation, then we improve, right? Mm -hmm. 
What are, what are some of the other, you touched on something there, which is a real challenge for a lot of businesses trying to do this, which is they don't have training data. They don't have mm-hmm. a place to start. They mm-hmm. don't have a live chat or call recordings or transcripts or any of those things. Um, what are some of the, and that's obviously a challenge, but I think you've explained how, how you can get around that. You can make some assumptions. You can mm-hmm. use previous experience of similar kind of use cases. You can put things live to a small amount of traffic. You can gather some data, analyze it and improve the models and stuff. What are some of the other challenges that you've kind of come across in the past as it relates to on the business side? So, I mean, if all, if all things were rosy, you can just design conversations, you know, and, and everything's mm-hmm. good. But mm. the implementation in the business environment can sometimes come with some challenges. I wonder if there's other things you've observed which, which are challenging on that front and how you overcome those things. You know, the biggest challenge is when, when I, you know, when I go and I'm, you know, I do all my homework, like I said, I go into a meeting, I have some ideas and, and I obviously want as much data as like Sherlock Holmes said, data, data, data. I can't make bricks without clay. You know, I, I can speculate, but if I have data, then, then it's going to be way better because it's, it's a real world thing, right? It's tangible. Um, one of the things that I always tell my clients is, do you have a call center? Yeah. Do you have a disposition report? Yeah, give that to me. Because your call center agents are talking to people all day long. They are your best resource. They are your frontline soldiers, right? This is who you need to talk to. If, 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 a, if a caller is calling because uh, the warranty is expired, ask your call center agents, what do they usually say when they, you know, when they, when they get to you? you know, it, it, it's another place where data can be mined, Right. You know, you don't think of it that way. But but yes, they are. The call center agents are the most massive repository of customer data that you can possibly have. And if you've got a call center, then use it. That's where you can get a lot of the self-service use cases from. That's where that data can come from. Hey, what's the most repetitive task you do all day long? Oh, is it this? Okay, well, you know, then that's a possible use case for the bot. Mm, mm, yeah, that's really good. Um, we hear a lot about large language models and, you know, few shot training of those models where, you know, you don't really need to do a terrible amount of that data mining really mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. To, to spin up something that, that kind of works. And, and, you know, I've given talks in the past actually about the future of conversation design as we approach these kind of large language model technologies, certainly for more information based use cases not necessarily mm-hmm. transaction getting things done sort of stuff but i'm wondering whether you can shed some light on where you think conversation design is going you know you, you've been doing this for for you know quite some time and, and given that people think that it's a new field anybody with five years experience in this field is yeah. is classed as being like experience so and you mentioned you've seen trends come back around and stuff like that so mm-hmm. being where we are now we know about the technology, as you mentioned, it's democratized access to this tool in a lot more. I think that the conversation design community is generally good now at, at sharing best practice and, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. um, but then we've got things on the horizon like large language models and, and things like that. So I'm wondering where you, if you were to, I don't know, if you did have a magic wand or a crystal ball or whatever, like what what do you think some of the things are that are changing that might affect conversational AI production or conversation design in the next, you know, five years or so? Well, um, you know, I, I never want to make these predictions cause I'm always wrong. You know, um, you know, 10 years ago, uh, if you had asked me, you think you're going to be doing this in 10 years? No, because it's going to be, you know, it's, I won't be needed anymore. Right. Well, the opposite has happened. Um, what I've what I've seen that excites me the most is that with this explosion of virtual assistants, um, user expectations have changed, right? They, they expect more, which is great, which means we have to rise to the occasion, right? The fact that people have uh, virtual assistants in their homes, they talk to them daily, they're on their phone. It has really changed how people interact with voice bots in general because they're, they've been trained for it. Yeah, and remember going back to when we were talking about you got to train your users, they're, mm. they're trained every day whether or not they realize it. Um, to use, you know, I use Siri and I use Alexa and, um, it has really changed how I interact with voice systems. Like when my husband calls, he launches into this long thing and I'm like, dude, no, you got to say this, you know, (laughs) it's like just three words and you'll get there. Trust me on this. Um, 
you know, the user expectations are going to increase. Um, the bot sophistication is going to increase. Um, and, you know, I, again, and I know I've said this and I'm going to be wrong, but I would be really surprised if, if conversation designers are going to be a thing in five years because these systems are going to be so sophisticated that I don't know that I will even be needed. Mm. I, I tend to think I'm more concur with your initial kind of observation, which was that, you know, you thought that a while back and it turns out that actually it's needed more than ever. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, you know, if you look at some of the large language models, well, we saw last week Blenderbot went off the rails because it, you can't just leave it there. You know, um, yeah. the Microsoft example from a few years ago, that went off the rails. Whenever you put them in the wild, they go off the rails. And <laughs> That's my, true. That is yeah, true. They do. Yeah. And, and my thoughts are that, like, these lang large language models, they're, they're built on billions of parameters, you know, and... Yeah. The engineers that build them, which again, everyone does the best they can at the time with the resources and knowledge that they have, but the way that they're built is that nobody really understands them. Mm -hmm. And so if, if it gets something wrong, getting back into that model to train a large language model with billion, how, how do you find which parameters out of the billions are the ones that have gotten things slightly wrong? Yeah. It's very, very difficult to do. And so, uh, and, and also a lot of businesses, the value for a lot of businesses is in doing things that deliver value. Like mm -hmm. answering a question, yes, it's kind of valuable. It stops someone from calling your call center, but it doesn't let a user get something done, does it? Booking, you know, if you're working with a tire place, booking an appointment to check your car in to get some new tires, that's mm -hmm. valuable because that's revenue for the business. It's mm -hmm. a job done for the customer and that requires intents and it, it requires gathering data and entities and slot filling and all those kind of things that, that are part of the, the current technology stack. So if anything, I actually think that the next five years with more companies wanting to do more with conversational AI, I think we're just getting started in, in the conversation design sort of uh game for want of a better word <laughs> i much like your uh your theory better <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did i did have those thoughts that those thoughts have come through my head before which is that large language models are going to take over and a conversation designer's job is basically going to mainly be about identifying content where are we going to get content from? How are we going to uh, create it and format it in such a way that a large language model can use it and synthesize it properly and summarize it properly and all that kind of stuff? How are we going mm -hmm. to measure the performance of this stuff to make sure that we're not giving people rubbish and that it is getting better over time? And and that was my initial thinking. But the more I was thinking about it, I was thinking there's hundreds of thousands, millions, billions, or however many companies there are in the world. Yeah. And every single one of them can use conversational AI, every single mm -hmm. one of them, in mm -hmm. some way, shape or form. And a large language model is not going to be fit for every single purpose at all. It's In fact, it's probably going to be only confined to content retrieval, um, which means there's huge, huge, huge opportunities ahead still. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we didn't even get into bias, right? We didn't get mm. into, you know, the bias of the models. I mean, that's a whole other topic that, you know, is another hour long conversation, mm -hmm. but you know, it's something that, that is people are becoming more and more aware of. And, you know, that's why one of the other ones went off the rail because of, yeah. the, because of the bias. So Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It's very, yeah, it's very real. I think it was Mark Bernstein from uh, Baltor, which was we were talking about on a previous podcast, and he was saying that it's one of the most fundamental questions of our time, which is the ethical use of AI. Mm -hmm. Bi bias being one issue uh, related to that, but the other one being giving AI autonomy to be able to make decisions, or even we were talking about psychology earlier on, programming an AI with patterns that let's say for example you could design a really successful conversation that is completely foolproof that gets 90 percent of the people through it regardless of, the, of whether they want to get through it or not right okay. you kind of you, you could potentially use in psychology you could create a conversation that could either mislead dupe people mm -hmm. uh uh you know convince people to get through a conversation and commit to something um, without them really wanting to do it. And so it's kind of like, yeah, it, it's, it is one of the biggest questions that we have at the moment is how do we make sure that we do things ethically and mm -hmm. things that are you know accessible for everybody so that there's a level playing field, but at the same time, 
so that it doesn't go off the rails and it doesn't turn into, you know, blender bot or whatever. It's mad. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a college course there. That's a dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> <I know>. You're <laughs> busy. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, cool. Well, I think, yeah, rather than go down that particular rabbit hole, because uh, we will be here all week, I think, on that one. Um, <laughs> It's definitely been a, a really, really interesting conversation. I've learned a hell of a lot here. And thank you so much, Dawn, for, for joining us. It's been absolutely fantastic. Well, thanks for having having me on. I really enjoyed it, Kane. I'd love to come back sometime if definitely, something comes up. Definitely, definitely. Three times you get the VUX World hat trick. I don't have any with oh, me. Oh, right nice. Now. I do, Excellent. actually. Hold on. <laughs> here we go. The hat trick. Oh, nice. For three appearances. <laughs> I owe a couple of people some caps, actually. Uh, I do need to get some in the post. So, yeah, more than welcome back whenever whenever you can, Don. Uh, and I will put the links. I know there's some good assets that uh, TalkDesk has, uh, designing customer conversations, best practices. There's a fantastic paper on that, which I'll put in the show notes. How to avoid the uncanny valley in conversation design is also an epic one. I'll put that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's another one, which is the future of uh, AI, the future mm-hmm. of voice AI, I think it might be called. Uh, I'll put that in there as well. I'm not sure if that one's out yet or if it's coming out. I think, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's out now. I think it's coming out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'll put all of those links in the show notes and uh, you can all download it there. And you can also go to voicesummit.ai to find out all about VUX World at Voice Summit 2022 presented by Core AI, walking you through the steps of what it takes to uh, automate your customer experience in your contact center. Uh, a lot of these principles that you've covered today, don't directly apply. Uh, so thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you. Cheers.